Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Trucking Driver podcast. I'm Dougie Rankin and I'm joined today by a special guest, George Bennett, who was the first editor of Trucking Driver back in 1984. And he's got a long history uh, with magazines, publishing, driving trucks, and he's got a new book coming out this September called Into the Distance, The Lost World of Long Haul Trucking. So George is going to be telling us all about that and his history with um, trucks. Uh, delighted to have you on the podcast, George. Oh, good to be here, Dougie. I appreciate your time. Yeah, so now, Trucking Driver uh, started in 1984, uh, but your um, career with truck driving, because you were a driver first before you moved into writing about them. Yeah, I, so, got, my, I got my HGV license, Class 1 HGV, in the September 1972, and I and I worked on and off while I was still studying at university and then I became a full-time driver in 1975. What made you, what made you decide to be a lorry driver? Was it something that ran in the family? Or was it no, just a sense my family, of like adventure? Have, my family were quite different. They were, you know, my father was a writer and philosopher. I just liked trucks. I liked, you know, I used to hitchhike in them and, I, you know, I just, I just liked to be, and I liked driving and there was nothing better as far as I was concerned than a truck. So I started driving and it was just as good as I thought it was going to be. And the other thing is I like traveling. So, you know, the, the truck drive, trucking enabled me to travel. So I did about 18 months work doing UK work for a little company, for a company called Abbey Hill Group, which used to be a major car transporter group. And then went for a little family firm in North Wales, the kind of firm that used to be all over the country and then and now basically dying out or already has died really. And, uh, and then I got a job with Cadwallader which who were a big international fridge company. They did mostly fridge work, but other work too. And then by a series of coincidences, I ended up doing a, a year in the Middle East. I'd have done the Middle East for longer than that, but I couldn't, there were too many delays in those days. And we were paid trip money. So I wasn't making enough money to support my family. So I went back to continental work. But that was good because we did a lot of work to Eastern Europe in the days when the Iron Curtain was pretty iron. And... Uh, I used to specialise in Romania quite a lot. So yeah, well, I mean, it was a very different landscape then because you obviously you had the individual borders between these yeah. countries as well, and yeah. particularly like the Middle East and everything. It was a very different uh, political landscape back then because this was before the Iranian Revolution, yeah. and uh, you know a lot of like countries like Afghanistan and Iran were a lot more um, open. Yeah. But of course, yeah, I do. I've I've read the sort of you know the cola cowboys books, yeah, yeah. you know the, the famous ones from that era, and there would be cases where guys would just get stuck for a week. You could stuck. Up I mean, you, you could wait. You could wait two or three days if things are going well. I I like cola cowboys, but I always thought they they had one thing wrong because those guys tended to think think of these drivers as kind of some kind of superman. But actually, the really interesting thing about them is they're just regular guys, you mm -hmm. know. Now, I remember, you know, you'd be working for a UK company and you'd get a job to go into the Middle East and suddenly, you know, you've never been outside the UK and now you're working out how to go through a border between Jordan and Saudi Arabia. I mean, that yeah, that took a lot it, of that took a lot of intelligence to be able to do that. It, yeah, it did seem to attract a lot of really, like, you, you say, people who really wanted like, a sense of adventure. There were guys who were like doctors and dentists yeah. and all sorts of different walks yeah. of life who just were somehow magnetised to come and drive yeah. trucks long haul during that era. Well, there were some like that, but there were also just regular yeah, drivers yeah. who just, you know, the, the firm got, the, oh, we got this new contract, we're going to the Middle East. Okay. Yes, you know, <laughs> it's sink or swim, because these days, you're with mobile phones and social media, you're permanently in contact with people, like, all the time, pretty much. But back then, I mean, you would be out of contact with people 
for days potentially, weeks, and they would yeah. just be assuming that you were going to turn up roughly where you turned up. And if you had a breakdown, yeah. then you had to, you know, deal well, with it in whatever way that you <laughs> you could. Well, in my in in the book, into the distance, I make I, I, you know one of the things I'm writing about is how different it was then, and the biggest difference is there was no cell phones, there was no GPS, and you're right, you'd be you could be away from home you know but if i'd leave austria by the uh, take another week a bit more than a week to get to dubai and that's the next time if i was lucky enough to find a phone that i could talk to my boss and then i'd head back again and he wouldn't hear from me again until i was back in austria yeah. so you know it was a very different thing and actually on my first trip to south to dubai which was my first trip to the middle east i did break down and uh, i had to sort it out for myself you know that luckily I could sort it out for myself, but because the nearest help was, I hadn't a clue <laughs> where it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was fascinating. You would see, um, like, the pictures and, like, well, there was, like, um, what was it? There was Destination Doha, yeah. which was a famous documentary. And I remember seeing a lot of pictures from those era, and there would be trucks that would just be left there. Yeah. Like, a British truck would be left in the desert just forever because yeah. there was no way of necessarily repairing it or getting it back. Um, now, back in those early days, what trucks did you start off driving in the UK and what did you end up sort of moving towards? Well, I started off driving the famous Atkinson Borderer. Well, I drove the model before that, which is called a Mark I Atkinson. I never quite understood why. And that was my first truck. And then I drove, um, for Abbey Hill Group, I drove an ancient, um, actually I drove a 1950s Mark V AEC Mandator which was only plated at 26 tonnes. Um, but but that didn't stop our boss, Roger Bastable, sending me all over the shop with it. And yeah. then I drove um, I drove ERFs, a, um, LV ERFs, A-series ERFs, Scammel Crusader, all kinds of... You may see them on the London to Brighton run, but you don't see them on the road. <laughs> and, it, you know, it was really interesting because they were, you know, of course they were all manual gearboxes. They were all non-synchromesh gearboxes so we had to double e-clutch and so on when i finally did get you know a volvo and it had a synchromesh gearbox it took me weeks to 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 stop double e-clutching yeah i mean i mean those trucks were very simple and tough in a lot of ways you know they yeah. would plod on forever and i think that a lot of the british hauliers were content with them until they finally realized they had something better but then again, the Scandinavians were used to running at much higher weights and operating in harsher conditions. So mm. Their trucks were better engineered from that sort of yeah. from well, that point. And it caught it. I mean, it, it's you know, it caught our industry um, kind of napping. They were slow to respond. To well, it. I think they were complacent. You know, they thought you know the Atkinson border. I think that if you wanted a Gardner engine Atkinson border, you wait months. You know, and they thought that's great. And then you know, then they had cabs made of fiberglass on a on an ashwood frame you know and then suddenly the the fleet i worked for am walker they they started buying there was a strike at gardeners they couldn't get the gardener engines they wanted so they tried these newfangled volvo f88s ha, and that was the end of atkinson because they were way superior trucks yeah so when you first uh, what was the trucks that you drove when you first started going abroad a thirty-eight. I was yeah, the first one. I went the first trip. Actually, the first trip was in a, with an old was an ERF MV. I think it was called, 
But that was the first trip, and after that, I had an F eighty eight. Was it was the MV that kind of limited edition one? Yeah, it was. A, it was. It was made for export. Yeah, yeah And the yeah. one I had was originally. If you if you bought Pat, if you happen to have Pat Kennett's old book on the history of ERF, there's a photograph of Cadwallader's MV in that. Yeah, I've I've read the book uh, yeah. on the history of those ERFs because yeah. actually look far more modern than anything else they were doing at yeah, the time. Was, oh, but it was better. It was, and it had a um, had a bunk behind the bed. I'm telling me, you know, I mean, I would, I'd spent eighteen months sleeping across the engine, so. To get a to have a cab with a bunk in it, I didn't really care what else it had. <laughs> yeah. And so, then, and then after that, the cadwalladers gave me an F eighty eight. And you, and in the book, I've got you know, there's a photograph of an eighty eight. And then, then I went off to to, um, to work for the middle on the Middle East. And I, the first trip I did, I had this Magiras Magiras Deutz with a three hundred and ten horsepower V ten engine. Would that, I, been, would that have been air cooled? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I hated it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't like it at all. It That's had a horrible gearbox. Powerful truck though for the time. Yeah, it, was, it was, but unfortunately it was quite low geared because I think it had been geared to go over the mountains to Tehran. Yeah. And so, <laughs> um, you know, but it was okay. But, uh, um, and of course it caused me a lot of trouble because it broke down on my first trip. So when they, when my boss, Jack Harrison, gave me a DAF for my second trip and then I stayed on the DAF, I was very happy indeed. The DAF 2800 was 2800, a huge yeah. cab. It was a great, it was, you know, it was really good to... The only thing was it didn't have much insulation, so it was bloody cold in winter. <laughs> yeah, they, they were iconic trucks, the 2800, and of course then you had the 3300, the 3600 yeah. uh, later on. DAF had, DAF put one on the road a few years ago and took let us all out to drive it. Yeah. And, everyone. and it were even like today, I mean, obviously you could see it was old, but... You could go out and do a shift in it today, and you wouldn't be any of the worse for it if mm -hmm. you had to. You no, know, it's a good truck, and it had a thirteen-speed, full of gear, eaten full of gearbox, which is a beautiful gearbox to drive. And um, well, they're still making them today. They, well, they are. Well, versions of it in the mm -hmm. states. Yeah, um, yeah. I've got a friend in the states who's got a, an eighteen-speed in his um, Peterbilt. He is an eight-wheel dump truck, but um, yeah. So. You know, and then so in so in the book that I admit that I, I actually into the distance, I begin with a um, an account of that for, mm. as a prologue of mm -hmm. the trip where I broke down and I leave myself broken down and then I backtrack to explain how I actually got there. What happens then? Do you need to go like trying to like um, go and um, communicate with some of the locals and things to try and get? Some well, 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 that happened is the thing. I just lost all my air and I was running with a guy who was supposed to be showing me the way, and he said, well. You know, um, your compressor's gone. Well, if his compressor gone, there's nothing I can do. And, mm. and and you know, within half an hour, he was off down the road, and he was going to go to Dubai and tip the trailer and come back, mm. and so on. But in, and after he'd gone, I just was fiddling about, and somehow the, the whole thing started up again, and the air started working. So after a few hours, I was off on the road again. So, but then then it kept failing, and I finally discovered what was wrong with it, and I fixed it long term with a. Actually, it was leak. The air was leaking through the blow-off valve, uh, on which I couldn't close. So I cut an electrical screwdriver in half and hammered that up into it, and it stopped leaking. <laughs> so I mean, but I mean, the day before we, that breakdown, we'd met some of our colleagues coming back from Dubai, five or six of them, and they got a, they had loaded a broken-down truck and trailer onto a, onto two other trucks to go back home because they, the, the truck had packed up completely without a crane. Mm -hmm. So what they'd done is they dug a ramp down into the desert, 
you just have to do what you had to do. Yeah, I guess the, ingenu- the ingenuity and uh, so the camaraderie um, must have been quite something else, like back in yeah. back in the day. Yeah. I mean, how about, I mean, in terms of like traffic on parts of those routes, I mean, you could you be? I mean, I guess some parts of it might have been really busy, quite dangerous, and at other times you might not see anybody for hours. No, it might be. It, I mean, I. I think it was dangerous if you wanted it, if you made it dangerous, you know, sort of, I mean, if you were sensible, you, you know, to, I remember a guy who got, um, had all his money stolen when he, he'd he gone off in Athens and we said, well, where were you? And he told us he was in the red light district. So what do you expect? Mm. You don't go there. <laughs> and nobody had any sympathy at all. But, you know, I think that, um, that you, yes, but you had to, you had to work it out for yourself as much as you could. I mean, some you know, I was lucky that the breakdowns I yeah. mean, I got there's, away. There's not a lot of that these days. It's like they almost like don't want modern lorry drivers to think. No, it's well, like you go, think, yeah. you go this route, you do this. If you get a bulb out, then phone the garage and you know yeah. anything like you get warnings up on the dash. People aren't like well, trained to go and think off their own bat because of course when something goes wrong, you've got a road closure or something like yeah. that. Yeah. You know. You've got a problem to deal with, then you know people. Oh, I've never had to think about this sort of thing before. Um, well, but the the, diff- the real difference is mm. communication. You mm. see, you couldn't. I mean, you know, there I am in the middle of Saudi Arabia, or once when I broke down in Romania, it was hard to communicate. So you had to fix it, and it was you. You tried darn hard to fix it because I mean that first time, there was and another time I um I had an accident near Jeddah. A guy drove into the back of my. He drove into the back of my trailer and he knocked the, the front axle of the trailer off its mountings. And I had to deal with it. And um, there was no one to help. <laughs> so I had yeah. to do it, you know. So I ended up driving around, driving with one axle and chained the other one up. Chained the other one up, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and then when I got back to Syria and I was waiting for the ferry to Greece, I, went, I found a bloke that would weld it all up again and off I went. You know, yeah. So that you had to be... And it wasn't because we were any smarter or anything. It's just that we had no choice. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, that's just the way. Just the way you know, we, we couldn't. And but the and the but the upside was that nobody could be looking over our shoulder. Mm-hmm. So it made the that in that sense. That's why it's a kind of you know in the book I'm talking about a lost world because the lost world is that the drivers were much had to be more independent if they were doing that kind of long distance. You know. Yeah, there was nobody to deal with things but yourself. And yeah. I get. I guess the thing as well. There was a relative degree of you know. You you would have the ability to get in about the trucks and fix something if yeah. it had gone wrong. Whereas things going on with technology and things have got more modern, it yeah, becomes less right. viable to do that because yeah. of the yeah. the systems in it. But I mean, the, um, I mean, it was a time of enormous change in the world of trucks as well. Because like you say, on the road, at one on one side of things, you've got a lot of small day cabs, wooden cabs, old British yeah. naturally aspirated yeah. things, and then these European turbocharged trucks are coming in with the sleeper cabs and I don't you would never see an era like that again where you had such a, a disparity yeah. between like the haves and the have nots. Yeah. Because but there were there were guys that would take an old Ac- a Mark One Atkinson to the Middle East. Yeah, that would, know, just, yeah I know. When I, the, when I was before I when I was eighteen I went to the um, sort of hitchhiked through the Middle East for for and, and to India before you know, which everybody used to do when they were eighteen you know, a lot of people did then. And and I saw down on the on the docks and waited to cross the Bosphorus in Istanbul. There were two trucks belonging to a company called Asian Transport, which later became Astran, and they were two AECs just sitting there. Oh, was that would that have been the first trucks then? I don't know. Probably they they were great. They, Astran loved AECs at the beginning, but they couldn't get AEC to be interested in developing a decent cab. I once went to talk to the 
to the boss there. I was looking for a job, and we had this interesting conversation. So, you know, but you people, they drove what they had to drive, but then they switched over to Scania's, and then that was the end yeah. of that. Well, yeah. I remember the story went that they went and wrote to every British truck manufacturer saying, please, can you, do you think you can build us a truck that's tough enough to go yeah. and do all this? And they either didn't respond or they said it wasn't possible. They wrote the same letter to Scania, and yeah. Scania said, "Yeah, one hours will do that off the shelf. Yeah. Don't need yeah, exactly. to do that. Just That's take right. it; it will be fine." They had they had <laughs> old Scania Vabises, you know, as they were with a with a sort of slightly set back <laughs> windscreen. But you know, so the, the, there's there's so many ways in which the British truck industry lost the plot that you, we could spend all day talking about that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> From one you think to another, I I think looking back on it. It could still have been viable, but you have to go as far back as sort of um, the, the days of Seddon and Atkinson being separate and having ERF and Foden. You would have to have one company well, which said, expanded yeah. instead of having all these little assemblers. Um, and you, you have to go right back to things having to have worked out differently as far back as the 70s to ultimately get to the point where there would still be a company today yeah. because of the global investment involved with all with all this sort of stuff and uh, you know it, it could have happened but it, you know, a lot of things would have had to have turned out differently right hand drive maybe had something to do with it as well, well maybe. I, I, think, I just think it's i think it was complacency you know mm. the big I mean, leyland was the biggest truck company in the world in mm. the 50s and and when seddon and atkinson got together and they built the seddon atkinson 400 that that was the first new truck i had of course it wasn't a sleeper but cadwallader's had some sleepers and it was a pretty reasonable truck you know, and it had, you know, theirs had 320 Cumminses and 13-speed full. It was, a, it was a nice truck, noisy, but it was good. I mean, it was competitive. Mm-hmm. I won't say, wouldn't say I'd rather have a Volvo, but um, it was a competitive truck. But then they weren't big enough, you know, as you say. Yeah. They, they, so, yeah, so. You had Bedford as well. Yeah. Because speaking to Peter Davies spent many years mm-hmm. at Bedford, and he was always saying that the Americans just did not get no, the British didn't. market. So you need to build an eight-wheeler tipper. Why? Is it because it's a British thing, you know? So you need to go and build three axle tractor units, and they just would not listen, and they insisted on like forcing the Detroit diesel in the early trucks, and then uh, yeah, that's uh, that, I remember talking to the he he was a, I can't remember his name now, but he he ended up being a chief engineer at Volvo GB, but he had worked at Bedford, and he said, you know, we had we had a V engine which nobody liked, and it was a two stroke that nobody liked, and that's what we were stuck with, you know, at Bedford. Yeah, the Americans just saw as that engine works great in the states, yeah. where you know diesel's like you know ten cents a gallon and yeah. everything like that, and they can run at those high revs for that. Little, and and the guys, the, the, the Packard, who took over Foden. I mean, when they took over Foden, they w- tried to make the British market like six by four tractor units, and the British market didn't like it, and they no. couldn't quite understand why they didn't buy them. And um, we got into trouble once. We said it was unfashionable to buy an ERF, and we got a rocket from the, the then boss of Foden, the American boss. And I said, well, listen, you've got 1% of the market. It's not fashionable. Mm-hmm. They don't want the 6x4. Then when they bought DAF, of course, they were smart because they, they bought DAF and they listened to DAF. You know, now they're putting DAF engines. I mean, they don't call them DAF engines, but they're DAF engines in their American trucks. You know? Yeah, it's been a bit, yeah, it's been a, um, that was a, a big time of um, change. With, with a, It was a real shame that the British truck manufacturers all kind of fell by the wayside just as Euro 4 came in. But yeah, well, they weren't, they were, they wouldn't have, you know, they hadn't, you know, those engines, to get the engines that clean takes a lot of money, and the British mm. truck manufacturers didn't have it. Yeah, coming, <laughs> I mean, they didn't of, exist by Euro 4, yeah, really. Com, yeah, Cummins were just like, we're not tooling up for this, we're not going to see yeah. the benefit, you know, and then by the time you've, you know. Well, they weren't selling, Cummins weren't only, were mostly selling to the British independents who disappeared. I mean, they didn't have a market, you know. I mean, don't forget, they were building 
Cummins engines in Scotland. Yeah, yeah, they're having shots. Shots, 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 you know, that old Anyway, so so when it, what I was so what I'm trying to do, you know what I'm trying to show about the the um, in in the book into the distance I'm talking about how things were different. I mean, and frankly, you know, we we, we had a lot of independence, and I'm not pretending we didn't you know have a pretty casual view of the drivers' hours once we crossed the water, you know, because yeah, nobody right. nobody really enforced it, you know. So if we fancied driving, we just drove. You know? I, so, I, I would imagine that there would have been no way to get things done. Really, you would have to drive when you could drive and everything. If you yeah. were sticking rigidly to tachograph rules back then out there it probably wasn't the most <laughs> you probably wouldn't be getting a lot a lot done well you know but of course when you once we were into eastern europe the, you know we i don't even know what the rules were we just drove to suit ourselves and so on how long did you do that for and how did you end up moving into truck journalism so seven i did it for seven years and then i um I ended up, well, I actually discovered, an, I, I had an American girlfriend, and so I went and spent some time, I stopped working for Cadwallers, and I went and spent some time in America. And when I came back, I, um, I got a job as a truck tester at, at Truck Magazine. I mean, I got, a, you know, I, mean the, I got the job, you know, because I could drive, really. And what, did, what did you do at university? <laughs> um, medieval history, and then I did a master's degree in American politics. <laughs> so... But then, you know, as you said, all sorts of people, I had a friend, a guy who used to know truck driving, and he was about three months from, from um, I, I was sat with him once on the docks in Syria, and he was telling me all about exorcism. He'd spent three, he was three months short of, of um, being ordained as a Catholic priest, and then he took up truck driving instead. Right. Yeah, just, <laughs> so there were all yeah. sorts doing yeah, that. All job. walks and, of life, yeah. And nobody cared, as long as, you, as long as you did the driving job well, didn't matter where you came from. Yeah. So anyway, and then I started working at Truck as an editor, as a as a tester primarily, and then you know because it was a small, it was a big circulation magazine. It was selling more, it sold yeah, in more than anybody else. Yeah, there had so much staff back then. I mean, I got into magazines in two thousand and five, which I, I got in just the tail end of what, yeah. what we used to call it the sort of glory years, which was before the credit crunch. Yeah, and there was a lot of staff on magazines then. Um, so what was what was it like on Truck back then? How many we, staff did they have? Two, just the two. <laughs> two permanent. Two permanent. And then we had a freelancer. There was Pat Kennett, who was the founder of Truck Magazine back in 1974. But he was, a, I mean, he was technically, he was on the masthead, but he was in technically a, um, a freelance. And we used a lot of freelancers, but there were only two regular staff on the editorial side, plus an art director and so on. But, um, yeah. But, but you know, we were selling over 50,000 copies of Truck at those days. It was a different world. On yeah. the publishing side, and you know, we did a lot of testing. And you know, when we went to Truck and Driver, we did when we started Truck and Driver, it was partly because we we were talking to two audiences with one magazine, truck mm. operators and truck drivers. Mm. And we decided we needed a driver's magazine, which is where the slogan 100% for drivers came from. It's still there, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, even to this day, I mean, since I've been in Truck and Driver, at least I've always like orientated it directly towards drivers and things. Yeah. We don't tend to stray into a lot of the corporate world, we don't tend to do a lot with really big, sort of, you know, blue chip, you know, yeah. uh, stock market listed hauliers. Our core is still your owner drivers, your family run little independent yeah. firms. Yeah. And there are, I mean, against all the odds, there are still like thousands of them out there, there like, are, ma there. making yeah. it work. And it's quite interesting to see there's been a few new, haulage names always come and go in the industry over the years. Mm. And there's been a few new starts and new successes with guys coming in and looking at things in a different way. Mm. Because, you know, the industry has changed. Like, you could take a driver from the 1970s 
who would be so skilled in many aspects and swap them if you could swap guys about that guy from 2023 and neither of them would be able to do the other one's job it's probably not yeah you know a lot of guys can't change manual gearboxes now but you've got to deal with a whole load of other things as well well. there's so much more there's so much more red tape now and 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 the traffic is way worse and you know just in time you know the idea that being penalized for being early yeah you know i mean all we were ever had to do was get the thing there as quickly as we could and so it, you're right. It is, it's, it is different. But you know, when I look at when I'm coming, you know, I live in the United States now. Um, when I come over here, and I just, you know, I've never. I, every time I go on the M25, I think if I was working to a tight schedule and I was the bloke parked in the right. truck next to me, <laughs> I'd be really oh, it's, tearing it's, my hair out. Yeah, so it's it's, di- it's difficult. The road network. It's infested with cameras now, mm-hmm. and the road closures and road works at night as well. When I came down here the other night, the M6 was shut as usual and you've yeah. got to take a huge diversion round. And it causes a, you know, it causes a lot of difficulty and a lot of stress and there's no consideration given to transport. No, no. Any well, you know, I mean, and it's, you know, in, in international work, I looked it up, I looked up the figures of trucks coming through Dover. When I stopped doing it in 1982 and I compared it with 2016, which is just before Brexit, which is like a peak of traffic, mm-hmm. and it had gone up nearly tenfold. You know, so it was it was sort of a cottage industry, really, mm. when I was doing it. You mm. know, and the chances were good when you were in Dover that you'd meet somebody you knew, or you know. Mm. But if you look at it, you know, I work for um, two quite two or three quite big companies. A company called A.M. Walker near Leicester. I work for Abbey Hill Group, which mm-hmm. was a very big car transporter firm. Eventually, I, I'd left them by then. I work for a small family firm called John Williams in. Um, in North Wales, and I work for Cadwallader, who are very big in international work in, yeah. the, in the 70s and 80s, and another company called Harrison. They were, they were people, Jack Harrison, he was the Middle East guy I worked for. All of them are gone. Yeah. None of them, there's so no trace it, of any of them. You know? yeah. so, so, what was, what was it like being the, the tester on truck uh, magazine? I take it, but I mean, there were a lot more truck manufacturers back oh, then for the yeah, start. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, were you taking the truck because there was a lot of there was quite a famous test routes and yeah. things that they would set we out had a they, would te- they would go in like time there was a lot of technical detail that went into those articles so we used to do we, you know we, did, we used to do a lot of testing we'd test acceleration we'd test braking we'd test um, um, and, then, and the primary thing when, when we were on the road was to get the fuel consumption optimise fuel consumption mm. and speed so you had to have this balance you know you wanted to to, to see what was most productive and so on and Pat Kennett, who was the founder and um, editor of, of Trump magazine, he had devised this pretty good route that went from Derby up through the through the Peak District to Manchester and then up the M6 and across the Pennines and then back down the M1 and back to Derby. It was quite funny because when I discovered actually that um, w- w- the first time I went out with a test with him, I um, we were driving an MAN 32321 and it was the first test we'd done at Trump magazine at 38 tonnes. So it was, it was in... Well, April or something, 70, um, to, uh, 1983, when we were just going up to 38 tons. And uh, so I'm watching him, watching everything he did as he went around the route and so on. And when we got to the end, we we filled up the truck in Derby, uh, uh, just just north before Derby, just off the motorway. And then we had to drive in, and he got me to drive. And I and I knew darn well he was watching me like a hawk. See? But it was a 13-spoot filler. I knew the gearbox. And right in the middle of Derby, there was a little road that kind of, the point of the ring road, when it kind of, Went up a hill to a traffic light, and um, as I got towards it, it was it was red, so I was slowing down, and I was in sort of eighth or ninth or something, you know, and it changed to green, and, and I so went from ninth down to second or third, and off I went. You see, and and he said all he said was good recovery, and I thought that gear change has got me the change. <laughs> I'm in with this guy. <laughs> so it was, but it was you know it was interesting to do it because of course suddenly 
you, you have to drive with a different discipline. You know, mm -hmm. when you're test driving, you've got to be looking at fuel consumption all the time. You, but at the same time, you can't dawdle. You've got to be getting there on time and so on. Mm -hmm. So there's this balance all the time. And one the biggest difficulty was getting used to having somebody sitting there next to you. Because mm -hmm. you'd always have an engineer from the from the truck manufacturer. Oh, right. So they would send somebody they, they, over. They, they'd always be hitting me. He'd bring the truck, and he knew the truck backwards, and he was a good. He knew how to drive it well. And if you didn't drive it well, he didn't like it. Yeah, actually, I remember reading one of those articles um, because we we inherited or we didn't have all the old trucking driver and truck magazines. But some days, father passed away, and they, they donated them to me. Oh, so they're good. All the old magazines, oh, right, which good. Yeah, yeah. Bride. I remember reading some of those articles. I think it was actually a Bedford TM, and one of the engineers was yeah. out with it because it yeah. wasn't right. Yeah. So the engineer was there to sort of mitigate yeah. the strange but behavior. But there was always the a guy that was always yeah. with you, and you know, I mean, you, there was good reason for them. I mean, mm -hmm. partly they wanted to make sure you did the job right, but at the same time, you could always ask them. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd say, look, you know, you know how to drive this thing. It's anything I need to know. Even though I consider myself a pretty good driver. Yeah. Well, I mean, there the were cases as well with certain gearboxes where, like they said, an Atkinson gate would be backwards and things, so you'd be changing yeah. going in a different direction. Some of the most some, 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 some fuller installations kind of went round in a circle like that one, you know, one, two. And it was, but there wasn't even any sort of diagrams on the dash yeah. or anything. You would just get in and there would be a stick. And then you would have to, you know, I had the theory, get it in a gear where it will move out the yard yeah. and then worry about it when you're out the yard. Well, you know, uh, um, when I first started driving, uh, and I go into some detail about this in the book, because mm -hmm. I sort of did the build up to, you know, when I, I was worked for this company called AM Walker and I had a license, but I didn't know how to load. So they sent me out for two weeks with two different drivers to learn how to rope and sheet and and all the rest of it, you know, sort of, and um, sort of... Yeah, but I had to learn all this stuff. But that's the only driver training I ever had. Mm -hmm. You know, I would get a new gearbox, a truck with a new gearbox. Nobody ever told me how to drive it. When they started bringing these things called exhaust brakes in, none of us knew how to use them. Uh -huh. We didn't know if you put your heel, if you press the exhaust. Yeah, because it was on the floor. The button. Yeah, you press the button on the floor with your heel usually. Yeah, that, that well, was... would the would the would the engine blow up if you did it for long? We didn't yeah. know. Nobody told us. Mm -hmm. Probably the guys. I mean. I had I, I drove a, a DAF twenty two hundred for Abbey Hill Group for a few weeks. I can't, I can't remember why, and it had this exhaust brake on it. None of the drivers knew anything about it. We were just playing with it, and I so I'd go down the hill with the exhaust, and I didn't realize, of course, the way to make the thing work is to change down. So you yes, get the revs, the revs up. Yeah. Nobody told me that either until I fiddled it, worked it out. So there was a terrible lack of training. Yeah, that still goes on today because yeah. trucks have got so immensely complicated these days, particularly with adaptive and predictive cruise control and systems like that. And there's a lot of guys that just don't know how to use these things or get the best from the engine, the engine brake because they're super powerful now as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's still a massive lack. Like, people still get handed the keys for things. And yes, you can get in it on automatic and you can just press the pedal and it'll go. But you won't get close to getting the best out of the truck. So that aspect of the industry hasn't changed it's just it's different things, but there's still a lack of well, you know, the, training the, out there. I would the say the thing is, I mean, I also talk about this in the book when I when in the introduction. You know, I kind of I sort of tell my life story as an on the road trucker for seven years, but I kind of in the introduction at the end, I kind of talk about how things have changed and how when I was a journalist, I'd hear truck the manufacturers would use and, and I quote, "We want to make we're trying to make the truck driver proof." In other words, we're assuming the driver's an idiot. Yeah, but, and I get that as an ex-driver that used to make me very cross. But yep. the fact is, if you make if you the point of an automatic is to make it automatic. So if you make an automatic so difficult to drive, why not just give the guy a manual? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you do find that some of the fleet spec lockouts can be quite um, 
restrictive as well. There's ones yeah. where you can't, you don't have manual um, changing yeah. because if you're in snow or mud or anything like that, you don't yeah. have that control over things, yeah. which I don't agree with. If you've got such a an abject lack of trust in the man that you're handing exactly. a £100,000 plus truck to, then, you know, there's something wrong with your yeah. business model and your training. Um, yeah, thankfully, that's... I don't encounter a lot of those because whenever I get a truck to test, I put them out to work for a week. Yeah. And it's usually always like a, a, um, a press demonstrator or something like yeah. that. So they're always pretty well specced yeah, yeah, yeah. in that respect. There's yeah. nothing ever like when I'm like trying to hit things. I'm like, this won't grant the gear. It won't do what I'm telling it. But at least now with the modern automatics, you genuinely don't have to object to them like you did with the, the previous maybe couple of generations where you'd have to knock them down gears to get them to go. Some of the technologies, the way it reads the road in front of it and everything, it's incredibly clever how they're doing that now. But you know, there used to be this guy called the driver that sat behind the wheel and he used to read the mm. road in front of him. Mm. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> the thing is, the, the interesting thing was, but when I am reading the road yeah. now, because just with this last generation of trucks, that Scania Super that I had, I'm reading the road and thinking, what am I going to do here? And the yeah. truck's actually doing what I would want it to do. Oh, well, and I'm not having to interject with yeah. that. But they've only just got to that point. Like now, because like previously they would get themselves, you know, they would take up shifts when they weren't supposed yeah, to, and, yeah, and yeah. they would get themselves in a right fangle. And well, you know, that I mean, when I started driving, you know, that I remember I realised when they said look ahead, what they really meant was look as far ahead as you can, not five hundred uh, yeah, yards, one hundred, two hundred. If if you can see a mile ahead, that's where you should be looking, and so on. And you just get used to that, and you can tell when you're driving on the road who oh, isn't doing that. Oh yeah, well that's the thing. So many people now don't don't drive looking any further than about you know. The, the, 10 yards in front of them and that goes for you know drivers of all sizes of vehicles car drivers are particularly bad for it these days because they're all cocooned in this really safe yeah, yeah, silent thing yeah, with their yeah. music on they're mucking about the phone well that's one of the things i mean i'm i'm, I'm you know I'm pretty ancient now and i've been you know i started driving more than 50 years ago so driving a truck more than 50 years ago so i kind of you know have an old but I, I mean, I like the engagement that you get with a with a manual gearbox. So, mm -hmm. but I remember, you know, when I worked for Jack Harrison, I, he gave me this, uh, the, and I, I spent I spent quite a lot of time in the book describing my first trip to the Middle East. A, because it was a lot of incident, and B, mm -hmm. you remember the first one. Oh yeah, very clear. Branded. So I've got about three or four chapters devoted to remember, that, yeah. just the detail of it. Anyway, I was in this Magiris, and and you know, had had a. a kind of ghastly ZF gearbox. It was one of the really unforgiving ZF. Um, constant, me um, constant mesh box. He had a double E clutch, and the, I mean, I'm, and then he gave me a daff, you know. And he said, and we're thirteen. He said, well, he said, just it, you'll be defined with this gearbox. He said, but um, wait till I've got, I'll wait till I've gone. He said, if I'm standing here, you're going to crunch every gear. But if I, if I'm not here, it'll be fine. And he was, and in fact, I didn't crunch it because I, um, it was the same gearbox as I'd had before, and you know, ERFs, and I mean, it had splitters on the top on the top half of it but it was mm -hmm. basically the same as the nine-speed fuller i'd had on an erf on a scammel on a Seddon atkinson but of course the first truck i had you know the first truck the the, the um atkinson borderer and uh, the, the the mark one atkinson and the atkinson border i trained on and aecs they had a six-speed gearbox yeah, david brown box uh, six-speed yeah. david brown mm -hmm. you know and it was really slow changing you know but, but you couldn't do it there's nothing you could do wrong with it really <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, that's the thing. I mean, those were incredibly basic, but also incredibly tough old things. Yeah, those they, they, would yeah. they would plod on yeah. forever. Yeah. Now, back, so, I mean, round about the sort of 70s, 80s era was pre speed limiters. 
Yes, it was. Stu- there was a lot of disparity. I mean, there were some kind of high-profile offenders in terms of going like high speeds with trucks. Yeah. But did you find there was like a big variation? Like there would be certain trucks that would come supplied with a diff out some American coach or something like that. Well, I, don't, I mean, you know, I mean, I had, I had an F10 Volvo and it would do 75. And it didn't do 75 in England, but it did 75 in Belgium. Yeah. <laughs> so it just depends where you are. And then if you're, in, you know, if you're in the Eastern Bloc, you're not going to do 75 anywhere in Czechoslovakia or Romania because there's, the eight, there's no road will let you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, that, that, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know any trucks. I mean, that was just a standard out-of-the-box Volvo, so it wasn't, mm. um, you know, but it was geared the way it was geared. The, I told you before that my Gearus I had on my mm. first trip to the Middle East, it was low-geared. Yeah, yeah. It, it wouldn't even do 60, um, which when you're driving at night in the desert and it's cool, you'd like to do more than 60, but you couldn't. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of, a lot of trucks, there's an, like, an enormous variation with yeah. the ratios that well. Yeah in them depending on what they were doing and people you know people would buy trucks second hand they would just get what they could get a hold of so you would often find that you know maybe had something that wasn't ideal for the job I mean, the way that people would over- overload volvo f7 tractor units yeah. things like that you know yeah. and just use it as a full weight yeah truck and the things would amazingly put up with it the abuse well, that these was, things was took with it well i had it you know when i when i got a f10 i was i was given a volvo f10 at cadwallers and it was new and it was my second new truck and uh, i was um I was running to Romania a lot, and I had a friend with a Scania 111. He, when we were running together, he kind of dropped behind all the time. And it turned out that one of the reasons he was getting um, hammered to death because there was no not not much of a suspension on the 111 Scania, but the F10 mm. had a four-point suspension. It was a hell of a lot mm. more comfortable. Yeah. Do you have any particular uh, trucks that stand out for you over the years? Favorites? Uh, my fa- I think my favorite was the 2800 DAF. I really mm-hmm. liked it. It was a great cab to live in. I mean, I w- you know, you're living in the thing for four or five weeks at a time without going home. You want it to. You want space and so on. And I love I love the gearbox. And it was quite powerful. It was a 310 horsepower or 307 horsepower actually. Um, and it had a whole 830 pound feet which is a lot then yeah well it's crazy now if you look at the top figures <laughs> yeah, that trucks yeah. have got no, today it's out of this world i mean the trucks now are sort of you know totally different in every respect you know but but i think on the whole i would still rather have the old truck and the old job than the new truck and the new job just because of the freedom you know yeah, I mean, it's, it's the golden era of uh, truck driving that, you know, if you could go back and experience sort of any time since the invention of the diesel engine, <laughs> the vast majority of guys listening yeah. to this, I would think out there, would say, you want to go and experience something, that would be the sort of time. Yeah. There's either that, and you've got that sort of, the era of, in America in the late 70s and mm-hmm. things where you had Smokey and the Bandit and Convoy yeah, yeah. and the CB culture. Uh, and those are the two kind of most famous sort of eras, I would say, that most people would like to go and... Um, we, we, experience with that. We took a we took a ferry from we used to take a ferry um, from Greece from the port of Volos in Greece to Tartus in Syria. It took about two and a half days. Once it took three days, but three and a half days because the ship broke down and, and was a bit calm. But anyway, and uh, they had a there was a you know they could show sixteen mil films and they and they had smoke in the bandit on there and everybody insisted on watching <laughs> it both ways. I must have seen it about fifteen times. <laughs> we always had to watch smoke in the bandit on the crossing. And uh, and they the, the crew used to just give us the projector. See anybody know how to use the projector? I'd stick my hand up, and then we just play films as much as we liked. But my smoke in the band, it had to be in it. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> it's interesting to hear. Like you know, what was what was um, 
So what countries did you visit then? Did you do pretty much like all of them across that part? Because there was well, Dubai, I, I, Syria, I went, I went Saudi to, Arabia. And... So I went to Dubai. I went to, to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. I went to Iraq. I did only eight trips in the year. And then I and I quit just because I need, you know, it got mm-hmm. very slow and we were paid trip money. We, yeah. were paying trip, we were paying 650 pounds to go to Iraq and back. Yeah, it's all right if the meter's running, I it's suppose. All, it was fine, yeah, you know, but then we the last trip I did was five and a half weeks because of delays and things. I, I just couldn't make any money at it. So I went back to Cadwallader. But but then in those days, you know, so we went from, we you know, we got to Belgium to Germany to um, Austria to Yugoslavia, which is one country then, into Greece, then across to Syria, and then through Syria into Jordan and then Jordan into Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia just skirting Qatar and then into the United Arab Emirates or you'd go to Syria and then into Iraq or Syria, Jordan and then into... Um, yeah, it's a terrible shame that the, the instability in the Middle East that's, you know, it's been pretty consistent, you know, yeah. not long after... Yeah, no, it was, it was around, around. I was really in the tail end of it. I was very yeah. lucky to get to, to experience that before they started making trucks go in convoys and it all got very difficult. Um, but we were, you know, we could, we were very, the, you know, at that time, the, there was only one category of, of visitors to Saudi Arabia who could get a multiple entry visa, and that was a truck driver. I had a six-month multiple entry visa, so I could come and go without having to get, but if you went on business, you had to get a new visa every time, but yeah. trucks, they needed them. Mm, yeah, what could be that, the, the big explosion in oil. I watched a documentary in Saudi Arabia the other week about how, you know, the country was just, you know, just empty nothingness. It was a few nomadic tribes, and it would still have been complete nothingness to this day if it wasn't for the fact it's sitting on the biggest oil deposits yeah. on the planet, yeah. you know, which completely revolutionised their economy. And it's a huge country, you know. It's nearly yeah. twice as it's nearly twice as big as France, Britain, and Germany combined. It's, it's huge. Yeah. And it, when I was there, it had a population of about twenty million. Yeah, and, and there's a whole bit down at the bottom called the empty quarter or yeah. something, which is literally just. And the other desert. thing is that the bottom, the southern yeah. part of it is in the tropics. You don't realize how far south it goes. It's actually right. tropical. <laughs> so, so you know, and 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 I think one of the things that I mean, also talking about in, in into the distance in the book, I'm you know that just how you had to learn how to deal with different cultures. I mean, you know... Yeah, because you've got all sorts of different religions and, you know, I mean, you've got Arabic as well because things wouldn't necessarily be written in English. No, I could read Arabic numbers. Right. But, I mean, if you look at the if you look at the cover of the book, it's got, there's the there's the road sign. It says Ramadi in 20 kilometres. Ah, yes. Above it's in Arabic, mm -hmm. so it's in Arabic and English. And there was a, there's a famous place in Saudi Saudi Arabia. There's a, non-Muslims are not allowed to go into the, the holy city of Medina, which is near Mecca, it's part of the pilgrimage, and so. And there's there's a big sign up in must be a dozen languages. It would be in English and German and Japanese and Chinese and all kinds of things, um, saying that if you're a non non-Muslim, you couldn't go that way. You had to go that way. We call it the Christian bypass <laughs> around around Medina. But you know they, they did. You know important signs would be at least in English as well as Arabic. Yeah. So what was it? I mean, what did it? Depending on the time of year you were out there, what was the heat like? And did any of these trucks have aircon in them? Like some of them had aircon pods on so the on roof. That, some did. Mine didn't have it. There was a school of thought that thought you shouldn't use aircon because right. there was a, I don't know if it's true or not, but people said you know there were people who jumped out of a cool air-conditioned truck into the full heat and immediately had a heart attack. That, that was true. I heard. I have that no story. idea whether it's true or not, but it's a story you all heard. You know. Yeah, I heard the story about the guy who got up one morning, uh, opened up an ice-cold can of um, yeah, Coca-Cola, drank it, got out his ice-cold truck into the sunlight, 
and then had a heart attack because of the sheer shock. So I don't the, know whether that's true or whether it was just a story that us guys without air conditioning told yeah. to make us feel better because <laughs> there was no air conditioning in that daft. Yeah, that would that wouldn't wouldn't have been a particularly common thing. It's starting to come in a bit more in the UK. Yeah. Modern trucks now, where, well, a lot well, of the aircon, the aircon's yeah. integrated into the truck, yeah. so there's not a pod on the roof, and it'll work when the engine's switched off. Well, my F10, which is I got in late, I can't remember when I got it, but let's say seventy nine eighty. Um, that F10 had air conditioning, and and I didn't use it much actually. You know, maybe in Italy on, on a dark night, on a muggy night. You know, I mean, what, one of the things I'm talking about is, you know, that, for example, is that you, we all needed permits to go to France and Germany and Italy. You needed a permit, and nobody ever had enough. Mm-hmm. So what you wanted, to, and if if the if the, if the um, customs stamped the front of it on the permit, front of the permit, you couldn't use it twice. So when you went into France. Um, they try and fold it over. So no, no, you just give them the you give them the paper like that, mm-hmm. and they'd stamp the back, which is just a sheet that was clipped onto it. And the official front end, they'd lift, they'd hold the thing up and look at you. And if you put ten francs across the counter, they wouldn't stamp it. Ah, and everybody did it. Yeah, you know, but a nice <laughs> money maker for them. Oh, then, well, well, ten francs is only a pound or something. But you know, mm-hmm. if you've got a truck with 40, yeah. 40 trucks come off, that's forty quid. You made it just yeah. on one ferry. And so, you know, there were little things that, that um, of course, you know, you don't really talk about, but that was just a standard thing. And it was so routine. You know, the I mean, first time I did it, I was with some two other Cadwallader drivers and they were showing me the ropes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I said, there's a kind of, you know, the customs officer was so bored, he didn't care one way or another. Yeah. And, just give the turn. and then they would just give you back the thing without stamping it. Mm-hmm. And then you'd put a new sheet on the back. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd bend back the staples and, and have a new sheet which would have the details mm. of the journey. Yeah. So, so there were little things like that that would, which definitely don't happen yeah. now. What, what time period does the book cover uh, from until then? Well, it, it covers from, I mean, basically from 75 to 82, but it actually goes back to 1980, 1972. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, you know, I mean, if you read my book carefully, you'll be able to rope and sheet him if you didn't have to do it. So that's due due out in September. Yeah, mid to late September, yeah. Yeah, so it'll be, appear. when do they, um, are there like, has there been copies printed of it yet? They're just, uh, it's just, it's 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 at the press right now, yeah. And um, we've just been fiddling with the cover. I went up to talk to them yesterday at the publisher. So, um, yeah. And there's a lot of pictures, but as I said, unfortunately, we couldn't get any. We tried from various sources to get pictures of my the very old trucks I drove, mm-hmm. um, and we we did get some, but they were with the wrong companies on them, and we thought that would be confusing, so yeah. we didn't put them in. But you know, I mean, if you think at that, I mean, right at the end, we put a picture of a Mercedes Actros from about nineteen, well, about nineteen. Yeah, well, just two thousand or something. Two thousand two, I was testing an Atros, so that's twenty years ago. And so there's just a picture of the end of it, just to give you a contrast, you know. And now, of course, the, the Mercedes is totally mm. different from that. So it, it kind of we do in the epilogue of the book, or the last chapter, I talk a bit about the trans, you know, how how I moved into the testing business and the writing business from driving. <laughs> Moved on to a truck and driver with a launch editor of Truck and Driver. Yeah. And then, so how long did you stay in the publishing industry for? Because there was quite, there's quite a story there with how things changed with Truck and Driver as well, because it went through new 
uh, owners, and then you ended up becoming an, um, yeah, part so, of the owners so, of Truck and Well, what happened well. was, I mean, if, I don't know how much this will be interesting to your listeners, but the um, Truck and Truck and Driver was owned by a small company that owned Car Magazine. Car Magazine was in... Uh, That's a big, big title, A huh? big title, and, and, you know, I still think it was one of the, probably the best anywhere. It was... The great thing about the company we worked for is that they put the readers before the advertisers always. Mm-hmm. There was one time on Car Magazine when when the bar, when the Ford withdrew their advertising because they didn't like what we got. And my boss, our boss said, I don't care. They'll be back. They need us more than we need mm-hmm. them. And they were, you know, mm-hmm. Ford. So anyway, so it was a great place to work for. You could write what you like. And then Mur- Rupert Murdoch's, a small arm of Rupert Murdoch's organization was setting up a magazine business and they were buying titles like car and consumer titles and they didn't really want truck or truck and driver so the first thing they did was they combined the two and we could see they still didn't want it so that, as i said mm. the previous editor of truck who'd employed me and i and our red guy we bought it bought truck and, and yeah i mean there's a lot of affection for truck because we did do yeah. the like the last issue a little yeah. while back and put it in the magazine and there's a lot of, there's a lot of appreciation for it among some of oh, the it was a great magazine. Older, and you know if you look at readers, if you look yeah. at a lot of the truck trucking magazines across europe they all copied it mm-hmm. um but because truck was ri- published by these people who didn't care if we were rude about the manufacturers we could say what we liked really and they didn't you know because as i said that they wanted us to be Reader led, not advertiser led, and so on, and we were. Anyway, so then, so then we bought it and we ran it for seven years, and then we sold it to Reed, who were the publishers of Commercial Motor and Motor Transport, and because uh, we could see that the writing was on the wall for small magazine publishers, was going to get very difficult. We, yeah, yeah. We launched, do, we launched need a, a, an amount of clout. That's what makes truck and drivers current owners DVV successful, is because their eggs aren't all in the publishing yeah, basket. Yeah, they've exactly. got a whole, they've got a load of events and things. Yeah. Which we're associated with, and that gives us the scope um, and the ability to. Um, it gives you some extra get, heft, doesn't it? Extra yeah, I mean, we're, yeah, we're doing like um, bumper-sized issues this year, where we're going up page sizes and everything yeah. like that. We're increasing the quality and giving people more, which is what you've got to do these days. You can't just rest on your laurels and just yeah. churn the same stuff out, or worse yet, reduce the size of the magazine, which might make you a bit of money in the very short term. But once you start doing that, it's ever yeah. decreasing circles yeah. with, with stuff. So how, how long did you stay on? Did you actually work for car as well? Yeah, for about 18 months. Um, yeah, I was I, um, I, I was taken to, uh, asked to work on car magazine. And so uh, my, my deputy, Jack Semple, who was a terrifically good journalist, he, um, I mean, he was the kind of guy who could find secrets the way that, where you just couldn't, you know, he was brilliant at finding, he was great at business no, stories. I mean, I was obsessed with, I was obsessed with magazines yeah. growing up. I mean, that's how I got so into yeah. journalism. That's yeah. how I got into journalism. Yeah. And it wasn't. It was because it wasn't because I'd got been qualified in anything. It was from reading years and years and years and hundreds and hundreds yeah. of magazines. Yeah. So I just knew you'd know what worked and what didn't. And yeah, I'd go and I'd spend a fortune. I used to get what car every month, and yeah. I'd get max power, and I would buy things like Car, Auto Express, Auto Car, mm. all these different, all these different. Well, you know, when magazines. we worked for Car, when I worked for Car, it was still owned by these four guys, these two mm. guys that, and and we could again, you know, for example. There'd be 40 pages in the middle with no advertising mm-hmm. because readers didn't like it. And people would say, well, can we put ads in the middle of the magazine? And we'd say, no. And this will pay you double. And we'd say, no, you can't. We just don't do it at any price. And it, it was it was a great place to work. And you could, I remember once writing, I was I was putting the magazine together. I wrote stories for it, but I was basically the production editor. And there was a, um, um, 
a story of a guy who'd been driving a really snazzy Aston Martin. He was a he was a sports driver. I mean, he knew how to drive a sports car well, and uh, but he'd never been able to get the seat comfortable. He said it was great, fabulous car, but I was never kind of comfortable. So I wrote my headline was "Pain in the Aston." Mm. And, uh, <laughs> Aston Martin didn't like it, but I thought it was great. <laughs> oh, is that a car? That's pretty. That's pretty mild. That's in good nature. That you know. That's... <laughs> Well, but you know, anyway, and that's okay. They, 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 but you know, I remember one year they were, a car magazine once famously put a photograph of a lemon mm-hmm. on the front of the cover, and then and the name of the car, I can't remember what it was, that it, they thought it, was a lemon. <laughs> yeah, I, I try to think what was that, but, but the notoriously terrible car. The, the Mark V Escort was particularly be. bad. Yeah. There was a Vauxhall Sintra as well, yeah. which is an American import. They were famous. I'm actually going to see after I've been here an Enreg Vectra, oh, yeah. which is a car that Clarkson famously slated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's down in Essex somewhere, so I'm going to go and see that as an aside for you know about my, my YouTube yeah. channel, which isn't relevant to yeah. trucks. But yeah. Um, the, anyway, uh, yeah, it was it was it was. So I did work for car, but it was partly because you know the the the, the, the owner said that he wanted me on car magazine for various reasons, mm-hmm. so I did that. But then, up then, it was from car that we we went off and bought and bought truck and truck and driver back for them. And I put a bit, you know, I put a little bit of that that back as a sort of end end story in the in the book to sort of explain where I ended up in the truck business. Yeah. So uh, you you live in the United States now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that when did you leave the sort of motoring journalist world to move out there? Um, well, after we sold truck truck magazine to Reed and Truck and Ride and. I had a couple of offers, good offers in the magazine business, but I t- turned them down because I thought, well, I, nothing's going to be owning truck, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so and truck and driver. So I, um, I just went into something else. I actually went into teaching, but um, and then I got a job in America, and I've been there ever since. Um, I didn't, meet, but I actually for quite a long time I kept testing trucks, mm-hmm. but I'd have to do it at the weekend because I had a full time job teaching. So I did test trucks for mm-hmm. motor transport in the at the weekend. What did you teach? Teaching at primary school. All right. Yeah. American politics today. <laughs> oh, I, just, I just teach them how to read and write. But when I tell them truck stories and they like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, that's been, now looking forward to seeing the book when it comes out. How many pages is it? Oh, it's about 270 or something like that. Oh, no, it's about a thousand. It's. Um, about it's just over a hundred thousand words. Yeah. We've not had we've not had a new book from this era era of trucking for quite a while. I think no. it should be quite. Well, I, I didn't realise that. It's, I'm it's happy good to know. for that. You know, I mean, there's there's ones that have been out there for like a long time. Yeah, you had the yeah. long haul pioneers, yeah, cola yeah. cowboys, yeah. things like that. Oh, they're still there, but it's good. But I put the. I mean, I wanted to see you know sort of do it from the inside, and and a certain amount of it, I'm trying to explain the trucking world to non-truck people as well. So. I'm hoping mm-hmm. that truck the people who know about truck there'll be enough in it. That, well, there will be because it's because it's you know it's explaining a world that's that's why I say the lost world because it has changed dramatically for, for over the last forty years. Yeah, it, it's not just changed; it's gone as well. That's yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's never going to come back. That it's a real. It's a really unique snapshot um, in history. Yeah, that was a, that was only happening for this very yeah that's, brief that's re- period in time. Yeah. That's really what I wanted to, to to show, you know. So that, and I hope that you know, I think that'll be of interest to anybody. You know, there's enough in it. There's there's enough that's similar between truck driving now. I mean, you're driving a truck, and it was then. But there's a whole bunch of things that are different. And I'm hoping, you know, I think that will be. I'm hoping that will be of interest to drivers and people in the truck business now. And there's things that, you know, people don't usually, you know, when we used to write about 
we went out with a driver and if you broke driver's house or something, we weren't going to say anything. You know, mm. we, we all sort of, we kind of, but I mean, I'm, I mean, it's 50, 45 years ago. If they want to come after me because I drove too far when I went to Nice one time. Well, yeah, I think there's, you know, I know in America, you I get, I know in America there's a statute of limitations. Well, I wouldn't know mind. If that's the same I, you know, it's just how it was. You know, we, people just, we just, once we were over the water, we, you know, there wasn't the same enforcement. The, the, mm. the, the British ministry didn't really care mm. what you did. As long as you were straight in England, more or less, you were okay. And, um, and we were straight in England, more or less. But, you know, and there were some big, some, you know, some companies, some very large companies that gave us delivery schedules that there was no way they could do it legally. Oh well, that still that still goes on today. I think yeah. you know you get yeah you get you get um, droplets for getting in a truck. You think is this a helicopter? You know, <laughs> I know. I used to have a lot of. I mean, remember when I started? You know, one of the things we always had trouble with because we had thirty-two ton limit mm -hmm. and fra foreign op foreign company. You know, we load apples in the middle of France and they'd want to put um, more than seventeen tons on, which is what I could put on a fridge. You know, they want to put another couple of tons, and I say I can't do it and. The only person that would get it in the net would be me. Yeah. And I and I when I started working on truck, I had a go at the Ministry of Transport and said, Why don't you start making the person who loads the truck partly responsible? Yeah, I think that's that's still on <laughs> a bone of contention today. I'm sure it is. Well a lot of big companies, because you occasionally get the enforcement uh, authorities going crazy about internal straps and things, they're wanting ratchet straps over yeah. things. But it's not gonna work in a lot of cases. Yeah. And it's just, you know, the lot oh, of this is unsafe and it's like, well that's the way it's been getting done and just they just hammer someday for something for no reason. And I'm like, well go and take these big um, you know, soft drink manufacturers, go and take them to task and make sure that they're doing it right instead yeah. of the poor sod that's in to pull the trailer exactly. out of the place. Well sometimes it, the rules are so unrealistic. I remember I wrote a letter to a truck and driver a few years ago when I was looking at the health and safety regulations that have come out about roping and sheeting. And they said, well, do, you, if, if, if there's nowhere to strap yourself up for safety, then do it from the ground. Well, how the heck are you going to unroll a sheet from the ground? You know, oh, it's, it's, you know I think these people haven't even seen a truck. Oh, it still goes on today. So you're not allowed to get up in the trailer. They're not allowed to do this and do that. You're like, well, how are you supposed to get anything done? You know, it's just, there are, you've got to accept an element of risk at times, you know. Yeah, I, know. I mean, you know, we, we, I, I was talking this, we were loading straw for Abbey Hill Group. And, I, and it was a great job. And I've, got, I've, I've written about that in the book, too. You know, and there was a, we were going three times a week up to get, there was no, no grass in the West Country, it had been so dry. And we were up on the top of these, you know, seven and eight layers of mm. straw, unrolling a sheet. Well, of course, how else are you going to get a sheet over it? You know? We always used to sheet on Abbey Hill just because it keeps it tighter and you never know, it might have even rained one day. But we always put a fly sheet over the top of the bales just because they hold it together tighter. There was boiling hot, dry summers, was it, back then? Yeah. There was, well, 1975. 1976 was the famous one. But it actually was very dry in 75, and that was the year that, that was the summer that we, that I started. It was then that, you know, that's my first summer as a full-time driver, really. I mean, I worked for, I worked for three months when between one university course and another for a company called Walkers in in Leicester. Mm. And then I went off and did something else. And after that, I went to Abbey Hill Group. And then, you know, we, we were, we were, you know, everybody, every flatbed truck mm -hmm. that, that Roger Bastable, who was the owner of Abbey Hill Group, owned, it was just going to and fro, to and fro from straw. It was a great job. I, was, mm. I got very fit. Yeah, so I, you, there's a picture of you on the cover, like I said, in front of the sign for uh, Baghdad there with your, yeah. um, your black vest on. So how old would you have been in the I was 28 in that, in that photograph. 28? Yeah. 
Yeah, I did it from the middle of 78 to the middle of 79. And as I said, I would have gone on doing it. I love Middle East. It was a fantastic job. Yeah, so that was a brand new truck then, pretty much. A yeah, pretty much. Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. And um, I, I thought it was, a, it, was a great, it was a great job. But as I said, I, I just couldn't make enough money. If I'd been single, I'd have kept doing it. But mm. I had a family of five. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, yeah, even at that, it's a phenomenal experience. And I'm glad you've been able to go and um, write about it and put it into this book. Yeah. I say... Uh, Keep an eye out where there'll be some uh, previews of this coming up in Trucking Driver, um, and we'll obviously be reviewing it as well. And I don't know if we might be able to do uh, any competitions with it or something like that. We'll have to go and speak to um, the relevant people. But yeah, I'm excited to see that. And coming out in September, you're getting out just in the right time for all the Christmas presents. You I know? hope so. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm, I hope you enjoy it. And I'm, you know, if, it's, if this is the end of the conversation, I'm. Yeah, pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, no, thank you. It's been a yeah wonderful uh, uh, chat to you. Um, sure, we'll get you back on the podcast uh, another time, perhaps after the books come out. You yeah. can tell us about how you've been you've been getting on, yeah. and we can get some uh, uh, more stories from another part of your uh, long and varied career. <laughs> you might have to go and write a, write something about being a truck tester. You know? <laughs> I could do that. <clears throat> yeah, the time when we rolled a roadrunner. <laughs> We had a we had a we had a well, group, that, yeah, we had a group we, roadrunner. we had a group test of eight trucks and it was all about the Roadrunner, which was new then, all at all at seven and a half tons. I think it must be nineteen eighty four, and uh, we were doing this group test. And the Iveco guy, the guy from Iveco, wanted to go at the the Roadrunner, and so he jumped in it and drove it down this airfield where we were testing and put it on its side. <laughs> What did he do? Just like full lock it and then flat? Uh, no, just he, the, he had a load of bricks on the back and it shifted oh. sideways. Actually, to be fair, it wasn't the bloke from it. It was the bloke from Bedford did it. Mm. The guy from the guy from Iveco masterminded getting it back on its wheels. Sorry. Ah, there you yes. go. Now, because some of the the press events these days, if you go to them, they treat you like primary school children. You know, yeah. everything's very regimented. Yeah. They look after. They make sure that you don't have to think for yourself at any sort of point. Mm. Some of those press events, like back in the day, were like famous. Like Iveco would take you away and go and like get you back in like the early eighties. They'd be giving you bottles of wine for lunch and everything, <laughs> and you think that'd be you finished for the day. And they're like, right, back out in the lorry, driving up the side of the Alps and everything. And the and well, these you things. Know, if, you, if you went into, uh, I put it in the again in the book again. You know, you went into a routier for a French driver's restaurant mm-hmm. in the seventies. There'd be a bottle of wine sitting all the way down the long tables, and there'd be a bottle of wine between each pair of guys, and everybody drank wine at lunchtime. This is France. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a. Way that, it, way that it was done eh? yeah anyway there yeah, we are. yeah that's been fantastic thank you so much, so much. for uh, coming on the podcast um yep uh, like i say guys um into the distance coming out in september look out for um, some details on that in truck and driver and i will give you some updates on the podcast when it's got its release date god thank you very much thank you thanks for listening to the truck and driver podcast please subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode To keep up to date with the latest news, 100% for drivers, visit truckanddriver.co.uk, where you can also subscribe to the print edition of Truck and Driver magazine, which publishes on the last Friday of every month.